I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Last Night at School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here to summarize for you what happened last night during the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Ross, good morning. Good morning, Jill. So, Ross, for the second week in a row, the superintendent's report included important information in the form of a memo, information that was not presented as a standalone report. This week's memo had information on instances of student-on-student misconduct, an issue that has been highlighted in recent news coverage. Rachel and school committee member Dr. Stephen Elkins asked a question about whether there will be more time devoted to this important topic. Just a point of clarification, will we have an opportunity to hear uh, a more in-depth analysis of the equity report at a future meeting? And Superintendent Skipper responds. I'll confer with the equity department. I think that there's certainly a deeper analysis that we can provide. Obviously, with equity reports, it's confidential. But we can certainly, if we can gather what kinds of questions the committee has, uh, we'll reach out and um, make sure that the equity office is available to to be able to answer them. You know, Jill, there's some really meaningful negative trends that are happening in this memo. There's actually increases of student concerns and complaints to the Office of Equity. There's increases of incidents. And overall, there's some concerning data that in the past has been discussed as a standalone report and has really important implications for how the district responds. Right. The data's been discussed. Individual students haven't been discussed. The Correct. S- the superintendent made mention of not disclosing private information, but thats I don't think that's what he was asking for. It sounded like he was just asking to discuss the memo. Exactly right. And then the superintendent responding, saying that she'll respond to individual questions. I hope what the superintendent means here is that she's willing to bring the Office of Equity in, have a, have a real report and a conversation about these data, and that she's not going to just answer the questions uh, in private conversation with individual school committee members. This really deserves uh, public conversation. The superintendent's report also revisited the memo she mentioned at the last meeting about school quality framework. We had a big conversation about this in last week's podcast. So last week, she merely mentioned that she had shared the memo, and we kind of dug into it on this podcast. At this point, it seems like school committee members have read it, and they had a number of comments and questions. Here's Superintendent Skipper. We shared the memo last week, and I discussed it in my superintendent's report. I've received some questions from members regarding schools that are traditionally tier one schools that move to tier two. An initial analysis is due that the framework having a heavy weighting on student growth. However, I've asked the team to do a deeper analysis and they will follow up with a memo to the committee to answer the questions. Ross, last week you said that the school quality framework is important to families as they make choices about school. Can you just explain, because there was a lot of conversation about this and it got very confusing, what is the purpose of school? the school quality framework. It's been around for a long time, correct? Right, Joe. It's been around since 2013. And nobody last night mentioned the real purpose of what this is what this is intended yeah. to well, do. Well, they made up new things, it seemed like, <laughs> unless did. they're changing. Uh, but- uh, yeah, no, certainly, Jill. They did make up stuff. And here's actually, here's, let me tell you in BPS's own words, this is from a 2019 memo on the school quality framework of the policy, which carries over language uh, from the, the original adoption in 2013 that was approved by the school committee. This is from the memo, Jill. It says, the domain scores of the school quality framework are integrated into the assignment process by helping to determine the potential school choices available to students. The overall measurement the schools receive on the five core domains are used to place each school into an assignment tier. Students have access to the closest two schools from the top quality assignment tier 
the closest four schools from assignment tiers one or two, and the closest six schools from assignment tiers one, two, or three. Because of its role in determining these assignment tiers, the framework not only provides information to families, it also plays a fundamental role in determining school choices available to students, Jill. Right. So we'll get into what school committee now thinks this is for, but this is the documented policy. And in practice, Ross, so I, I have a child who is going to enter the Boston Public Schools. How does this school quality framework work? Yeah, you go into Discover BPS. Yep. You enter your address yep. as a prospective parent. And you it, it basically gives you the list of schools that you're able to choose. Right. So the school quality framework actually dictates which schools you have access to, which schools your child can go to. Right. So it's not just a let's make up something for parents' sake. Right. It literally dictates which school your child will, will be able to attend. So it doesn't apply to high schools. And in the case of high schools, I could either, if I was a student, I could either choose a school or if I don't choose a school, I will get automatically assigned. Right, to you're administratively assigned to a yeah. school if you don't choose. Okay, so that's the school quality framework. And so school committee members, they now have the memo, they've read it, they were particularly frustrated by both the rankings and the lack of access to information about the algorithm and the underlying data. Here is school committee member Brandon Cardet Hernandez. We don't know the underlying data and that wasn't shared with us. So will we get that? So we understand how the calculations were made. And then for you, what was surprising and do you stand by the way that these tiers have have sort of played out. It's incredibly different than the DESI framework. And so now we have this system that may be confusing to families, like what who, like what is right, but also what's the message that we send in this moment of some confusion, particularly as this is the most real information families have as we move into a decision-making time. So Ross, why our school committee members. Frustrated. <laughs> he kind of represented a number of sure. frustrations. Sure. I mean, one, there's a lack of transparency around how the calculations were created. There are some real inconsistencies here that Mr. Cadet Hernandez is naming. We also covered this in our last podcast, but we, we have schools really at the you know 3% or 6% statewide performance, right? So they're literally the bottom you know 10% of all schools across the state. But yet in BPS, they may be a tier two school right up there with the school that has 96% out of 100 performance. So it's just, it's just there's no clarity. There's it no clarity. Sense, and, right? and there's no underlying data. And the superintendent continues to say, but this is used just to help parents understand better. They can click and understand it. There's no data, Jill. There's, you can't understand why a school has a score or is in a tier that they're, that they're in. Right. And so so it's interesting, right? Because now we've just we've just discussed the historical documentation on the policy. It seems pretty clear what the purpose of the school quality framework is. And yet there was a conversation last night about what is it even? How is it used? Here's Vice Chair Michael O'Neill. I think the ultimate goal that the task force talked about is they ultimately wanted to get to a sliding scale. You can almost picture on a computer screen, like what's important to you as a parent? Is it about growth? Is it about achievement? Is it about programs? Is it about safety? Is it about location? And you could slide back and forth and then get a different ranking based upon what you want to get to. Obviously, this is a step in the direction. And, and as the superintendent said, it was a delay because of pandemic, right? When it was originally visually, we were going to be seeing this regularly. And it was, it was supposed to be a yes. And it wasn't to replace the DESI rating. It was like, here's the DESI rating. 
here's another rating that maybe incorporates some things that are slightly different. I picked up on your comment, Superintendent, where you said your initial analysis is it's because it appears to be very heavily weighted towards growth versus achievement. So this may be the type of thing that as we dig in, we're saying, okay, it's great, but it's not quite getting to where we want it to get to where parents have a, a great indication, so mm -hmm. to speak. So yes, it made it, it was a starting point. Yes. And I think it's something for us to consider. Um, but we should be cautioning folks that it's a yes and it's another piece of the puzzle. Do not make a decision on school based upon this one rating or ranking. Right. So like so parents should not should not use the school quality framework. Is that what we is that the intent? No, it's not the intended purpose. The intended purpose is, is you must use the school quality framework. You're to going to schools. use it if you right. go up to the website and put in your address. Totally. Jill, right. So And the school's gonna use it to assign you if you don't pick a school. Jill, the Michael O'Neill of the district. Michael O'Neill, Jill, was the chair of the school committee when this policy was implemented in 2013. It it literally was under his watch that the school quality framework was approved. He created it on, under his watch. Well, he, and the he, current superintendent was also working for Boston Public Schools. Mary Skipper time. was a regional superintendent in the Boston Public Schools at the time. So they were both in the district. They were both intimately involved in this policy and neither of them can remember the intended purpose of the policy. It, it seems like, oh my God, let's, it really, it just seems like the math needs to be checked. There do seem to be some incongruities. Now this is the whole thing. We can't even figure out what a quality school, define a quality school in the Boston Public Schools. I mean, this is ridiculous. You would think you would want to have more rather than less, and that would be the goal. Uh, moving along, the superintendent reported that the Massachusetts School Building Authority approved funding for a new building that will house the merger of the Shaw and Taylor schools. Right, Jill. There's a lot of questions uh, still about the merger and how the new building will fit into the Green New Deal plan. We're not even sure where the building will be sited. However, the MSBA is is funding it. That's great news. And I guess there's a lot of details to come forward. And you got to remember, Jill, when we go through the MSBA, the Mass School Building Authority, these things usually take you know somewhere around eight years from the beginning of approval to the end of construction. To implementation. So this will be a long haul. So most of those students will never see the new school. No. Yeah. The meeting then moved on to public comment. Uh, most of the commenters were from the Gardner Pilot Academy community. Here's one parent expressing her outrage at the removal of the school principal. Hello, my name is Paula. I'm a parent at the Gardner. Where do I start? I have four daughters. My oldest is 21 years old. And if it wasn't for Mrs. Herman, like I don't know where do I start? When it comes to her, excuse me. <laughs> when I think of this lady, I think of integrity. She has all of that. And by y'all removing her, y'all not only hurting her, y'all hurting us. All my kids went there. When I decided to choose for my daughter to go to Boston Public School, I remember being in this building. I remember Mrs. Herman not knowing where who she was, and she seen that I had Garner. And she said, that's a good school. And I said, what makes it a good school? She said, home. Right there, I didn't need nothing else. And it's been consistent. All my daughters go went there. I have my nine-year-old there right now. And if you are telling me Mrs. Herman is not coming back, you are harming her. I shouldn't hear from a nine-year-old. My principal was removed. That hurts. I should have never heard that from a nine-year-old. And I thought she was just joking. <sighs> like I said, where do I start? 
this is hurting me. I left work to come to this meeting. This means a lot to me. You are messing with my daughter's education right now, removing Mrs. Herman in the middle of a school. We have so much going on. Not only are you messing with my daughter's education, you are messing with all of their education. Roger, this was, this was, this was tough. You know, in, in public comment last night, we heard a little bit from librarians, a little bit from faculty and families about inclusionary practices and concern around implementation of that. But the majority of public comment last night was about the leadership of the Gardner School and not having a leader at the Gardner School. And being we, her being removed. Right. I think it, it's really hard to hear when there's instability created in a school community. And this has happened before in BPS schools where people are placed on, on leave mid-year or from, and nobody tells you why. Um, it creates a lot of uncertainty, a lot of confusion for everybody in that school community and is not healthy or helpful to anybody. And so, you know, when these things happen, when somebody is placed on leave, we hope that it's because of some really serious concerns and it's not based on, on other minimal concerns. Because when you disrupt a community like this, it, it takes years for it to get back, if ever, to, to get back to what it was. This is a school, Jill, by the way, the Gardner Elementary School, the Gardner K-8 School, was just recently, I think last year, a school in the move. It was, it was noted yeah. as the one of the best or the best school in Boston. And it, it's heartbreaking to see a school destabilized like it, this. It really is. There were two presentations after public comment last night. The first was a new proposal from Superintendent Skipper to amend the exam school admissions policy. We're going to talk about that second. First, let's talk about the presentation on, it was a finance update from CFO Nate Cooter, who was kicking off the annual budget process. It was a long presentation and you know i think it can be summarized pretty quickly yeah a summary and Jill, of- i think i think first as you noted here we're in december and this is a budget presentation but we do not yet have a budget the budget will not be released until february they're we- in the process of working through the budget <laughs> right, with right. principals which they said right and so what we're, what we're not going to do here is speculate and go through the entire create a budget for bps right. but what we can tell you is we've been talking about this for a long time we know that ESSER funds end really the school year. They have until September to encumber the funds. We know that will lead to ultimately some funding gap in Boston Public Schools. So Jill, what, what we know is that under ESSER, we have about 500 school-based positions. A lot of these are teaching positions. That's around $70 million. So these are teaching positions that were instituted during when we brought in the funding from ESSER and that funding is going away. That's 500 positions that are going away this school year and um, about $70 million. That's going to be felt in schools, in their budgets. We also have about 100 or so, maybe 150 central office positions. Some of those are school-based, some of them are centrally based, that are also going to go away. This is a total of about $125 million gap, and there's no way not to feel that. We'll see what BPS does. Right. I mean, it was alluded to that there's always been significant support from the mayor's office. The mayor has already pledged $50 million towards inclusion for next year's budget. That was mentioned as well. But at the same time, in addition to losing ESSER funding at the end of 2024, Vice Chair O'Neill reminded everyone that the city's immediate financial future does not look as hearty as it has in years past. And we all see the half-empty office buildings in downtown Boston and we read stories about office buildings that are selling for half the price that they were several years ago, you could be darn sure those landlords are immediately applying for tax abatements. So, you know, the city revenue picture That's right. is going to be a challenge for the next couple of years. So it's not like we're going to have big increases coming mm. from the city. 
beyond the fact that, again, we're very lucky to have a mayor who is enormously supportive of what we're trying to accomplish in the schools. Right, Jill. I mean, it's going to be interesting how this plays out. I mean, we didn't hear from CFO Cooter or the superintendent last night that there was massive concern, nor did we hear anything uh, really about the master facilities plan of the Green New Deal and its implications for this and school mergers or any of that content. Last week, Jill, we saw a memo from the superintendent that talked about school mergers and closures would be announced this coming spring, but there was no mention of that last night and there's no connection to the budget conversation that was presented last night. But in reality, I think the summary of the budget presentation was a discussion about ESSER funding going away, that the budget's going to look different, that the mayor may be putting in additional funding, and that budget season has just begun. And so there are lots of conversations with the public and with principals to get to a proposed budget in March. That's right, Jill. The schools will be getting their budgets today, and we'll get a sense of how schools are implicated in this process. But this will be months long, and stay tuned. We'll see how it plays out. So the other report last night was on a proposed change to the exam school policy. Here's Superintendent Skipper introducing that report. Tonight, I'm bringing forward a recommendation for your consideration as it relates to the current exam school admissions policy. My team analyzed five options in response to recent concerns raised about the access to an exam school seat by students who live in particular tiers and attend non-bonus point schools. She outlines the five options her team considered. The options we examined were, the first was remove the 10 points, two, adjust the number of points from 10 to the point differential between Title I schools and non-Title I schools. Option three, adjust the number of points from 10 to the point differential by tier. Four, keep the 10 points and ensure all students with perfect scores get their first choice of exam school. And option five, keep the 10 points and distribute invitations using 20% ranking by merit citywide in 80% ranking by merit within the tier. And then makes one recommendation. The option I'm recommending for adoption is option three, point differential by tier. I got to say from the slides last night, and we'll post them on our website, they were put together without a lot of detail or illumination and left a lot of questions. The data was missing a lot of information, right? It was missing like, what are the implications for applicants based on income? What is the, you know, these are things that the policy was intended to do is to diversify the exam schools. And there was no underlying data about what was going to happen with this new policy change. But let me try to summarize what the superintendent recommended. Um, You'll remember, Jill, we have eight economic tiers in, um, in this policy. So essentially the, the original policy was intended to give each tier, 125 seats, with tier one being the lowest socioeconomic status and tier eight being the highest socioeconomic status. So each tier is 125 seats. That did not change. Tier one chooses first. Tier eight chooses last. That did not change. What changed, Jill, was the allocation of points given to students in schools that are either Title I or no points to students in schools that are not Title I. And you recall, Jill, this was about essentially saying that schools with 40% of more students living in poverty would get bonus points. The superintendent's recommendation is basically saying the 10 points 
was an arbitrary number. And now we have real data to try to understand the difference in performance between Title I schools and non-Title I schools in each tier. So basically what the superintendent is saying is she's taking the average score in each tier of a Title I school, average score of a student in a non-Title I school in each tier, looking at the difference in those points, and that would be essentially the bonus points for the Title I school students. So whole schools would receive points still, but the points would be tailored by tier by the difference between Title I and Title II schools. And so Jill, in the lower tiers, that some of those, you know, Tier 1 and Tier 2, Tier 1 is 9 additional points, Tier 2 would be 11 additional points. And then Jill, in Tier 7, it's 4 points difference. And then in Tier 8, 2 points. So to basically give you the, the, the lowdown of this, it's, this would mean a, a student in, in a Title I school in Tier 1 would receive, every student would receive 9 points. And in non-Title I school, again, they would receive zero points. In tier eight, students would receive, in a Title I school, two bonus points, and a non-Title I school would receive no bonus points. So it, so it has the effect of not changing what happens in tiers one through five. There's actually not enough competition amongst well, okay, okay. So, Jill, right in right, tier five. Let's just. Right. I think we just. Yeah, let's get into it. So, so yeah. there's the there, there's 125 seats in each tier that are allocated. Right. And in really in tiers one through five, there's not enough applicants to fill all those seats. So almost 100 percent of students get into an exam school regardless of their composite score. If they have a B, they get into an exam school. The points don't matter. So 11 points in tier two doesn't matter. Every student gets in. Um, it's, I think it's a 99%, almost 99% entry rate. Where it matters, Jill, is in these upper tiers where there's way more applicants than seats available. Right. And these are the students that we saw in past school committee meetings coming to school committee members saying, I cannot get in to an exam school. I cannot get into Boston Latin School, which is my preferred choice, unless I have 100.2 points and it is, I cannot get 100 it is impossible right. it's impossible because i don't have if i don't have the bonus points I, my composite score is 100 and that's therefore i'm being excluded that's right that's right it's, it's, ex it's, it's exclusionary and so this really the only thing that happened last night is the superintendent's recommendation solve for that right i encourage everyone to look at the deck at, at the slides that were presented last night because they are confusing and it deserves further look but the superintendent's policy recommendation states that now a student would not would not need 100.2 they would need somewhere 97 98 to get in so it's still now it's possible to get in mm -hmm. so she eliminated the impossibility which creates in, more competition which will create more competition and really the competition jill is really at those upper tiers right because we're we have more applicants in those upper tiers double triple the amount of applicants in the upper tiers than we do in the lower tiers and lower tiers it may, really does absolutely nothing there's no change the tiers essentially control for the points there is no need for points in the lower tiers in this policy until you dramatically increase the number of applicants member brandon cardet hernandez raised another issue you'll remember he was the school committee member who was lobbying for reopening conversation around the policy several months ago he didn't feel that this recommendation nor any of the recommendations considered by the superintendent and her team actually solved for the issues that he had highlighted several meetings ago and has continued to highlight over the past several months. Just to make it clear, I proposed, and maybe I should have taken a vote for it or something, an amendment to look to figure out how we can allocate the 10 points based on an individual's socioeconomic status. 
rather than an entire school. And so for whatever it's worth, like as a member, the what I brought to the table was not represented here. And for the future, I have learned a valuable lesson, which is like out of respect for the chair, I didn't raise it as a vote. And I will never do that again because this entire process, I thought someone was listening to me. And it that is just not what happened. And then Superintendent Skipper doubles down on the idea that points cannot be given to individuals because BPS doesn't have that data for students not already in the system. But Mr. Cadet Hernandez again pushes back at that, pointing out that this data actually does exist for most students. I just feel like we have to be intellectually honest here. We have that data for kids currently in our system. We don't have that data for kids outside of our system. The sending school would have that data, as would the state. And there is a universe where we can get that data if we are in agreement with a sending school or a se- or the state. And so then he adds that actually the universe is even smaller. The data is available for kids in other public school districts, and it's available for students in charter schools. So this is an issue that's just for private school students. So we really are talking about private school students who we don't have income data on. So just like, I just... I want to start getting like really precise on this one. We're talking about private school students that we think would be the most difficult to get that level of data on. And in fact, Jill, what we know about students in in private schools who may be getting financial aid or other assistance, uh, students who are living in poverty, that data is also available for them. The schools have that data and private schools, I would think, would handhold the admissions process, you know, right? Or they'd handhold the submission of information for their students if the family wanted to go to one of the exam schools. So Jill, I mean, I just want to note here that the superintendent has said in probably at least three or four previous meetings that she was going to look into Mr. Cadet Hernandez's proposal and get back to the committee. And last night she came to the committee meeting pretty much ignore, no, not pretty much, ignoring Mr. Cadet Hernandez's proposal writ large. So we'll have to see what happens with that. But so then, Ross, the interesting thing is that Dr. Elkins makes one of the important points, I think, of the evening, which is the policy, which was deemed untouchable just a few meetings ago, is now touchable. So it, it, it is, the, the policy has been reopened for conversation. It is not a perfect policy. There's some speculation that in certain cases, because it's exclusive, it's not even legal. This is his point. This is a small win, I think, to sort of continue the, the metaphor of the curtain, you know, where we were two weeks ago from thinking that this wasn't touchable. The fact that we're even here knowing that there's an option that's already on the table for a change is a step in the right direction. I don't want that to get lost in in the conversation. And I know, again, like I echo your sentiments, like it has to go deeper than that as we're, we're dedicated to this, but no, like this is a, this is a good start. Let this be a lesson in government, Joel. Everything is touchable. Everything's touch. Of course, it's touchable. I mean, thank God it's touchable. We live in a democracy. It's actually a beautiful thing. That's right. That everything is touchable and that advocacy works. Advocacy does work. Jill, the simple summary here on this proposal and the conversation is that the proposal solves for the potential illegality of the current policy by ensuring that every student in Boston has the ability to earn enough points to get into an exam school of their choice. But the kicker is, Jill, and the chair explains this very clearly at the end of the meeting that the policy does not actually solve for the inequities that need to be solved for. It's really, it's a band-aid, Jill, that hides the real wound. Boston Public Schools does not 
provide a high quality education for all students. It does concern me when I see the difference in the minimum composite scores by the tiers, which is almost a 30 point, you know, anywhere between 26.9 and 29.5 difference between the lowest composite scores and the highest and only can imagine the experience of the students. And so we've we've often talked, yes, so this getting into the exam schools is great, but the question is, what are we doing from pre-K to grade six in every single one of our classrooms for the potential of every single one of our students and for our schools to remind themselves that every school needs to be preparing their, their students for the best experience possible. Um, but when we still look at these kinds of composite scores, and the need for um, points, I continue to worry about um, the overall preparation of our kids to be able to take advantage of this and not just the kids. And, and we see where they're clustered and the um, the tiers that, you know, have, whose kids have to have a 99 to get in and somebody else is getting in with a lower score. And my question is really about the preparation. It's not about, are they worthy? I'm sure many of these students are worthy, but there's something that's not happening for them and their experience um, in preparation. And I feel like that's the that's where I would love to see our energy going into really investigating what's going on inside of classrooms um, and in schools so that we can improve these outcomes for all of our students. That's what happened last night at the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. We want to hear from you. If you have thoughts or concerns about how BPS is serving your students, please send us an email at podcast at shawfoundation.org. That's S-H-A-H foundation.org. Thank you for listening to Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston's students. Have a great day. Happy holidays and a happy new year.